Welcome to North Star Big Book. My name is Carly Israel, and I am your host. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1999, and I created this podcast simply to share the message of the big book. It completely changed my life. It always changes my life, and I hope it can help change yours. I am so excited today. I, I'm very rarely excited to do things because I don't want to do anything, but I am so excited because I have one of my favorite humans on earth, my favorite female on earth, Sarah, and she is my sponsee and my sponsor, and we'll address that just to get it out of the way in a minute. Um, we're doing a series of, I'm doing a series where I get to interview and have people on who love the big book like I do. And they get to pick some pages and show us what they love about the big book and how it's helped change them. Sarah, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sarah Marcus Donnelly. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hi, Sarah. Tell us your sobriety date. My sobriety date is November 27th of 2001. Amazing. My home group's practical experience, which we love, where we go through the big book. Will you tell, let's, why don't you just let, let it out there? Why are, am I your sponsor and sponsee? <laughs> You're my sponsor because I was living in Washington, D.C., and um, I knew I had to move back to Cleveland. So a few months before, I was just like racking my brain trying to think of a woman who had significant sobriety time who was in the book. And I was just really having a rough time. I was going through all the people on my phone. And when I came across your name, I was like, I think this is my only shot. Like, she <laughs> say yes. Do you remember what I said when you called me? Or you were so happy. You were like, I prayed for you. I uh-huh. prayed for you this phone call. And I couldn't believe it. I was so happy. And that made me feel really good because it's so important before you move somewhere, even if you can't get a sponsor, to make sure your support system's set up. Yep. So my family's here, but, you know, I hadn't been living here for a long time. And I think I told you that I just started working with Kevin, who was blowing my mind in the steps, and that we were about to, I asked you if you were ready, because we were about to do some serious work. I was so ready. And we became an army of two, of women, and we've grown and grown and grown, because the beauty of the steps out of the book is if you're doing it, then the people you're doing it with just become the soldiers next to you that you count on and that you need. And the reason why Sarah became my sponsor is because I worked with Kevin for six or eight years, which has been incredible. And he will always be in my life and I love him. And he taught me and basically changed the way I take people through the book. But I really felt the need for a woman in my life to be my sponsor. And um, it just worked out so well that I trusted Sarah. The way I saw for the last six plus years, seven years that she was working it exactly the way that I work it out of the book and that it's no joke. Like if I gave you Sarah's number and you sent her a 10 step, we would pretty much say a very similar thing. She definitely has different ways of approaching things than I do and vice versa. And, um, you know, our experiences are different, but our solution is the same. And when people hear that, they're like, how is that possible? And the reason why it's possible is because if you're doing the work out of the book, the solution is always going to be get back to the book, get back to the steps, get back to your higher power. And I just need someone who's doing that, who's accountable because I've had many sponsors in my sobriety and to have someone who I see doing the work every day is a game changer. Absolutely. I think, you know, this is such a sacred relationship and I think about who does this every single day to the best of their ability without fail, right? no matter what is going on. And honestly, I mean, I can't think of very many people who do that. And so when I'm looking for someone to guide me through the steps, I want to make sure that person is doing this always, that yes. there's, there's never going to be a lapse where they're like, oh, I just didn't feel like it today or I was so busy. Right. I mean, you um, guided me through hyperemesis, which oh. if you don't know what that is, it means you're horrifically sick while you're pregnant and you're vomiting constantly and you can't breathe. And there's never been a time where like one of us was going through something really hard that we're like, I can't, I can't work with you right now. And 
it, I want everyone to know before they throw up listening to us, <laughs> we, we mess up every single day. We get in fights with our husbands. We have to make amends. We are shit shows. We forget stuff. We want to quit everything. Like it is all real. And we tell each other really hard and uncomfortable things. I can't yeah. how many times I get a text and I'm like, ugh. I know. We Look get to. And uh, speaking of hard and uncomfortable things, what pages are we going to be doing? I, we're going to talk about the sex inventory. Oh. So start on page 68 at the very bottom. So Sarah is my go-to human when I want to point people to how to write a sex ideal. And the sex inventory is so misunderstood, so confusing, so overwhelming. Um, we love Joe and Charlie until they start talking about sex and then they destroy it. And um, we are going to hopefully try to make that a little bit better. And the other thing I wanted to say before Sarah starts is Sarah lives this because not only does she live this in her own life, but when I was going through a really traumatic time in my sex inventory life, she consistently was non-judgmental, only pointed me back to the book and the steps and God and never, ever, ever did what it tells us to not do on this next page. So take us, take it, take us through it. Okay. So on the bottom of page 68, the last paragraph, it says now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes, perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Okay, pause for a second. So a couple of things. We've just reviewed on these pages before this point how to do the resentment, fear, inventory. Now we're at the third inventory, which is a sex inventory. When I first was told about this inventory, I thought I just needed to write a list of all the dirty, bad things I did. And that's actually not what they're going to be asking us to do. So we'll get into that in a minute, but I want to like, just clear the air for that. I also want to identify where you said on 68 about the human opinions. So this is the most dangerous area that you can cause harm as a sponsor, because if you let your human opinions get in the way of guiding your sponsee through this part of the inventory, you will mess them up. Absolutely. I think, there's only one instance that both you and I will really step in and say something serious. And Which that, is? That's when a sponsee is uh, dating a brand new person in AA. And when I say brand new, what I mean is somebody who hasn't worked the steps yet. Right. Um, so they could be 10 years sober. Correct. Um, and that's because really we're harming them, right? And I want AA always, no matter what, to be a safe space. And if somebody in my sponsorship family is potentially making this an unsafe space for new people, that's my business and my problem, at least to say, try and intervene. And so, you know, and look, sometimes people say, oh my gosh, you're right. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stop doing that. And sometimes they don't. I've seen it go either way. I've seen people have okay relationships. And I've seen people go out and drink again and die. So, you know, it's, it's a serious thing. And you right. never and and I have both been in relationships with people in AA. Right. I um, almost married yeah, to tell someone. us. Yeah. I, um, I called up a wedding and only like 200 people were mad at me. So, so <laughs> give us a little background. You were engaged to somebody in AA. I was engaged to somebody in AA who in the beginning was working the steps. Um, although, you know, we always have that voice in the back of our heads or in our gut and our stomach that tells us perhaps this is the wrong choice. But I was like, shut up, voice. <laughs> this guy's hot. Yeah. Right? And we had all the same things, right? Our families belong to the same synagogue. Right. Jewish, <laughs> sober, NAA, good looking. Right. So many things were intertwined. And I just thought, you know, um, it says to be careful when you think God is giving you signs. Yeah, God is giving me so many signs. We like got snowed in together in a cabin. And I was like, this is God telling me in winter that because of snow, I was like, God, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, we were long distance. I lived in DC and he lived here in Cleveland. And um, 
there were a lot of warning signs and uh, it became very clear to me after a while that he wasn't working the steps and um, we sought help and um, the information sadly that I was receiving from the people that we sought help from is if you love each other enough, you will figure it out, right? That was, and I thought, I thought this is insane. Like we do love each other. That's clearly not, that is usually never the problem, right? Love is never really the issue. So we really did, I believe we really loved each other. Um, and it was, it was really rough. And, you know, it just, it be, after I inventoried and I inventoried and I inventoried and I talked to my sponsor and I prayed and it took me months and months. And finally it became- Wait, pause for a second. He became a different person because he stopped working the steps. Right different person unrecognizable truly and then what happened for me is I realized you know I I don't even remember you know this was 2000 and I don't know four five I don't know but anyway I was significantly sober right I'd been sober for a long time at that point and um you know I I just remember thinking I can't believe I'm at this place again, right? Mm -hmm. I worked so hard to become this person that I looked in the mirror and I loved, right? I, I, all those things that I used to dislike about myself that people are like, you're too loud, you're so sensitive. I started really embracing those things and yes. I didn't like the person I'd become. And eventually I, I saw that this train was gonna crash and I thought, I don't wanna be on this train when it crashes because my sobriety is so precious. I, it's almost like I could see into my future, right? Yes. I, I could see the divorce, I could see the kids, yeah. I could see the mess. And, and the crying nights and him not coming home and the addiction and all of it. And I just thought to myself, why? Why would I, why would I ever put myself in this position? So as terrible and hard as it was, and our breakup was, I mean, it was, I was gutted and it was terrible. And um, he obviously took it really poorly because he wasn't working the steps. So he didn't have any spiritual tools. You call off a wedding. I call off a wedding and um, him and his family did not react kindly to me. And um, I, because I'm a woman in AA who works with other women, I got to show up to meetings where he was sleeping with all those girls. Didn't you get to sponsor a girl that, um, yeah, or, I or, with, yeah, I worked with her and she didn't know. Wait, so just listen, listeners, <laughs> she worked with a woman who her ex fiance was sleeping with. Yeah. And she didn't know who I was and it wasn't my business to tell her. Right. And my only, the only reason I come to AA is to hear a message and to give a message and to help other alcoholics and to, you know, hear, get the solution. And that was my only job there. And it was brutal because I'm not a robot, I'm a human being. And I cried my way through it and I showed up and I didn't say anything about him. And I just tried, did my best to focus on the steps because that's what we're here. But the reason we don't date people in AA is because it becomes an unsafe space, right? Yes. All those meetings, they're off the table, right? Yes. I can't go to this meeting. He's yes. When I there's not a pandemic and you actually go to meetings and you, those are the meetings you go to, now you no longer feel safe to go to meetings, which is the place that you are supposed to feel safe. And it's not just that person. Think about the ripple effect, right? It's all the people he sponsors. It's his sponsor, right? It's a whole group. And to mesh those support systems, you know, it's almost impossible not to. It's yes. really tricky. And so I do not recommend, I mean, the real tragedy of this story, right, is that this person um, and I ha had no contact after that, zero contact over the years. And, um, you know, I would hear every once in a while, somebody would say to me, so-and-so is doing really well, unsolicited, right? Right. <laughs> People felt like they needed to tell me how well he was doing. And I would say, that's great. I wish him the best. He got married. He had a kid. But in the back of my head, I never received an amend from him, right? He never, yeah. ever reached You out. knew he wasn't doing well because right. if he was doing well, he would have made amends to you for destroying your relationship. Right. Terrible, terrible things happened. And I never heard from him. And I thought, ah, you know, how spiritually fit can you be? But again, totally not my business. And right. The real tragedy is um, he OD'd uh, a couple years ago now and uh, left behind a lovely wife and a little itty bitty baby and, you know, destroyed 
his whole family. I mean, he that was, was you that you literally saw that was like the ghost ship of your life. You saw that. And so obviously Sarah's story is intense and extreme, but it's not, it's, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people I dated in AA before I realized like what you just said, AA needs to be a sacred place for me. And at first I was so afraid because I was so young when I got sober that like, well, if I take a out of my dating pool, then I'm going to have no one left. Cause I don't go to bars. Right. I don't go to parties really. I don't do anything other than like, well, then what happened is I had to start living my life, like being outside of just AA. So I made the decision at four years sober after totaling humans um, with my sex conduct in AA that I was no longer going to use AA as a dating pool. And that, um, you know, for me, men in AA were going to be my brothers and fathers and, you know, they were not going to be anything other than, than people I was going to be useful to. And what's awesome about that is I went from a girl in AA that was not safe to a woman in AA that's respected that sober recovered men in AA can send their sick boys to and say, go talk to Carly. She used to be crazy when it came to her sex conduct. I think we forget how essential life and death vital the work we do here is and i think that if that was in the forefront of our mind that this is life and death and that aa's sole purpose is the teaching and practicing of the 12 steps that no one would date anybody in AA. right and we would realize who we're dealing with which is people who just barely escape death who have not connected with their higher power whose hallways are blocked off who have ghost stories and shame and amends they have not made and havoc and can't hold down a job and can't keep money and can't keep promises. And then we're like, Oh, let's date. You know, I like to say that this is not a haven for the well. No. <laughs> and also, you know, I'll never forget. I had been single for a really long time, a couple of years. And, um, I moved back to Cleveland and you asked me what my like, deepest heart's desire was, what did I want? And I said, you know, I, I, I want a life partner and I want a family. And you said, well, what are you doing about it? And I was like, nothing. And at the time I had lived, I was living with my parents for the year to um, help them out. And um, you were like, do you think that like an eligible bachelor is going to knock on your parents' door and be like, knock, knock, is there uh -huh. a lady here I could date? And I was like, yeah, like, that was uh -huh. the option, right? I wasn't, Right. I wasn't willing to take any action steps. I just, in my mind, because of the movies, and we were talking about this before the podcast, right? We have this idea because of what the media has shown yes, yes. what a relationship is like. And we, I feel like we get this misinformation that we're just supposed to like stop trying and like wait for the world to like yeah. fancy person in our lap. And that is not how life works. It's life. not. It's not. Um, I love you so much. Okay, keep going. So we're on the top of 69. Then we have voices. Okay. I just want to say really quickly that before the sex inventory part started, you said that they were talking about fear. And the very last thing it says is we ask him to remove our fear. So we ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. So we're going into talking about sex and the sex inventory with this prayer of God what do you want me to be? So not like, what do, what does my partner want me to be? Or what am I looking for? So our goal and our primary purpose here, our focus is doing God's will. So what does God want for me? And right before that, it's talking about all men of faith of courage. And we let him demonstrate through us what he can do, which is so interesting that you pointed that out. I've never considered it, how they're connected, because what they're talking about, you know, the reason why we have poor sex conduct, at least in my experience, is because of fear. And the fear is of every single, every single fifth step I've ever listened to has the exact same fear, almost number one or number two, I'm afraid I'm going to be alone forever. And because we're all afraid we're going to be alone forever, or we're unlovable, or no one's going to want to be with us the way we are, we make decisions in our sex conduct that are harmful and stupid. Um, and I want to say that if we focus on the courage and we focus on letting God demonstrate through us, and we focus on the question you just asked about what we can let God demonstrate through us, then we can become men and women who make choices in this area that are not harmful to ourselves or others. I just got chills because I just remember so clearly saying to you after a failed relationship, what if this is as good as it gets? 
And I really, in my gut was like, it can't be, right? Like, right. can't be it. And you were so certain it wasn't it, but I wasn't yet because right. I didn't have any evidence to the contrary. And I love this idea of courage because this whole program is designed to get this beautiful relationship with God. And once we have this relationship with God, we get to see that God's plans for us are so much bigger and better than any. And I want to identify one thing before you start again, even though we just trashed meeting, um, meeting your soulmate in AA, there are amazing relationships in AA that I know that, you know, I'm going to have one of them on my podcast because they both just did um, a big book interview with me and they're amazing. They've been together for 10 years and they love each other massively and they're good humans because they both independently do the work that it takes to be good humans. There are amazing recovered humans in AA and they would make amazing partners if they consistently do the work. It's just rare. Right. It's the exception to the rule. Yes. Yes. And as I've learned, I'm almost never the exception to the rule. Except in strange medical things. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So I'm on the top of 69. It says, then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. I underlined, we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? I have written on the side in like ma- in massive letters, like it's a neon sign, stay out of it. Um, it is not, it is so hard to hear someone tell you something that they're doing that is so like watching them crash into a building. And like Sarah said, unless it's someone in AA that they're in the car with, you, we stay out of it. Um, and the word arbiter I have written down is a person in power or a person who has solar absolute power of judging or determining. And before I became a student of the big book, which I God willing will always be, I would look to my sponsors mm-hmm. as arbiters and they loved to take on that role of telling me exactly what they believed I should do. And their beliefs came from their religion, their childhood, their upbringing, their own relationship stuff. And they were very, very, specific and you're not allowed to do this and I think you need to do this and you should stay away from this person and the idea today that I can tell anybody what to do unless they're in a physically or an abusive relationship or they're harming someone else is insane also what a shit role I know I mean oh well how freeing that I don't have to do that if that were what sponsorship was I would oh be my god that is so stressful and And it always blows up in your face always 100% and I've written my book what is your business right so anytime I hear something that's super concerning for my sponsees I have to pause and I have to say is this person in immediate danger if they are then it is my business to say something because I'm supposed to be a spiritual guide if they are not my only job is to direct them back to God and the steps, the end, end of story. If they are unable or unwilling to see the truth, that is not my business. So you know what the other thing I do, I do incorporate, which I think is helpful and allows me to be honest without being an arbiter is if like I have someone that I have a very long standing relationship with that I'm working with. The most I will do is I will say to them that I hope that they can see that they deserve to be treated better or I hope that they can see that they deserve to not feel the way they, they're telling me they feel in their 10 step because sometimes when we get stuck in a, a relationship that's not healthy we can't see that what the way that we're being treated or the what we're accepting is is not healthy and it sometimes takes someone that's not in it that is healthy to say Hey, FYI, in healthy relationships, you shouldn't feel like this on a regular basis. Absolutely. I have two tools that I think about. The first is I always say, what would you say to yes. the who told you what you just told me? Right? 
my boyfriend, he told me I'm a terrible human. He, I haven't seen him in a week. He doesn't return any of my phone calls. I love him so much, I'm going to stay, right? I'm like, what would you tell a young woman who came to you and said that? Would, you, would, would that be a woman who's walking through the world with dignity and grace? So also, a side note, when I argue with my husband, I have this idea in my head. I, I ask myself, like, would I be proud to have my sponsees watch this fight? Would, would it be awesome for them to sit and watch what I'm saying to him? Would they be like, oh, yes, I would like to conduct myself like that woman? <laughs> no, I need to get my shit together because right. that's the example I want to put out in the world. The second yes. thing is that we have the tool of sharing our own experience, which is different than telling somebody what to do. I think sometimes it can still feel that way, right? Being on the receiving end if somebody's like, well, here's what I did. But I think if you preface it and you're really clear about, look, this is my experience. This is what I did. This is what did not work for me. This is what did work for me, right? If we only, if we never share what went wrong, nobody believes us anyway. Right. It's not an image that people want to live up to. So, right. So sharing your successes and failures through the steps is super important. And I, I just think, um, you know, it's so valuable also to remember that I do not know what God's plan is. And, you know, like, what do I know? Maybe this is exactly what this person's supposed to be doing. And that really, um, it gives me relief. <laughs> right. And uh, I don't know. I think. And uh, the book is about to tell us what to do. Absolutely. We don't have to even figure it out. The next paragraph that Sarah's going to read actually the next three paragraphs are going to tell us exactly what to do. So this part that you're about to read is how we do the sex inventory for our fourth step, but it's also a tool we can use for the rest of our life for how to figure out relationships. So Sarah would always bring me back to this page and be like, did you do that inventory about the situation you're going through? I'm like, yeah. And she'd be like, why didn't you share it with me? I'm like, because it was awful. My answers were horrible. Like, if I would have shared it with you, you would have had to see out loud what I can see that you can also see that I don't want to see. I will also say that is why I believe that it's so important to write this down. Yes. Doing verbal inventories are great on the fly for small things. For big things like a sex inventory, absolutely, obviously in your fourth and fifth step. But when you're writing out a 10th step, it's really important if you see some vital truth to have that written down so you can go back to it and you can't, your mind can't justify or talk you out of it. You wrote it down. You saw the truth. So you can't talk yourself out of that truth. All right. It says, what can we do about them? We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. So our own conduct, not anybody else's. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? This is important because this is what Carly was talking about when initially she thought she just should just write a list of all the terrible things she had done, right? So here, you know, I hurt so many people with my sex conduct. I was selfish, dishonest, and inconsiderate, not just to the people who I was intimate with, but let's, to their partners, right? Sometimes I was intimate with people who had partners, so I was inconsiderate to them. I was certainly inconsiderate to my parents. Yeah, because Um, we walked around in whatever we walked around in and we lived out loud in a way that was like, if you don't like it, you turn away. And it was so scary. Could you imagine your child like behaving like that? Their home and they had to come home. I was, that I felt like my space when like, it's not my space or my sister who had to endure all the terrible rumors and things that were said about me because she's younger than me. Right. That's such a good point. So column one, for those who are doing this for the fourth step for the first time, is who did I harm with my sex conduct? So in that column, Sarah would put her sister, and in the second column, she would put what she did. So what would you put for the second column? I would just put um, that I behaved selfishly and recklessly, and unfortunately, my sister had to pay the price for a lot of that. Right. And those were my intentions, but it doesn't matter. Right. Of course, no one intends to harm somebody. And then the third and fourth column are exactly the same as they always are. What does it affect when I think about this? And what was my part? So the the fourth step sex conduct is the first column is whom did I harm with my sex conduct? So Sarah would put the person that she used sexually, the person's girlfriend or boyfriend that she used sexually, 
her parents, you know, they would all be there. I had, I didn't know that. I just put my first time I ever did. I just put all the people I hooked up with. And that actually is not what you're supposed to do. So keep going. Sometimes also my friends were on that list. I can't tell you how many people I ditched. Yes. Like go hook up with someone. Yes. They were relying on me to like take them somewhere or like a right. ride. I mean, I was so selfish. It didn't matter. Yes. I didn't get what I wanted. Also, you know, it took me a lot of years into sobriety to understand what prostitution was. Right. Talk about that. Well, I really thought that. Uh, it was just money, like on the street, like. Pretty woman. Didn't consider myself a prostitute until I really looked at my sex inventory deeper and saw that I traded sex for drugs, which is literally the definition of prostitution, right? It's a commodity. I traded I traded sex for a commodity. And right. You know, that I couldn't drop my standards low enough to meet my lifestyle choices. I, I just couldn't. Yes. And I did that too. And it wasn't like I was standing on the street and I was like, Hey, I'll do this for you to a car. It was an understanding from someone. You're going to give me this and I'm going to give you this. You know, I always go back to, I wanted what they had. Yes. (laughs) And they wanted what I had. Right. And you should, and, and today I live by the same principles, right? I try to surround myself in sobriety with people who I want what they have spiritually. <laughs> but do you know what's really important to identify about this? So I didn't know for so many years until Kevin pointed out that that person needs to go on my sex conduct. Because I was like, no, but they use me and I use them. And it was mutual or a, a one night stand that was mutual. And he's like, no, because you used another human to get something you wanted. And that's not the way that we are trying to live today is we don't use people to get something we want. That and we don't get to decide who we've hurt. Yes. You know, I, who knows? Right. Know. Right. All I know is I acted poorly. Yes. And how that other person was affected, I can only make an assumption. Yes. Um, okay. So did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? So if I felt like I wasn't getting what I needed in my relationship, did I go flirt with a bunch of other people? Yes. Did I do that um, brazenly in front of my partner to get attention? Did I um, put that extra pressure on a friend who I had no intention of doing anything with because I needed to feel good about myself? Did I leave or how about, um, I'm sure that I can speak for you, but you can tell me if I'm wrong we were probably not like the healthiest, most responsible people while we were doing all these things. So forget all this emotional stuff. How about physically and medically? We put people, many, many people at risk because I was the girl that didn't use anything. Like I was just, that was the cool girl. And I I have three boys and I tell them, if you find a girl who's okay and is known for not using a condom, that means that she's not using a condom with everybody, which means you're sleeping with everybody, which is terrifying. It's terrifying. And also, I mean, this isn't funny because infertility is not funny, but as you know, I struggled for many years with infertility yes. and looking back, it really makes sense because I was reckless yeah. and it is a, I thought it was miraculous that I wasn't um, a teenage mother, right? That I didn't get pregnant multiple times throughout my using because I certainly could have. And I mean, I think a lot of us got away with a ton and a lot of us didn't, right? Like, I don't know about you, but when I got that HPV result, nobody was surprised. We were like, like, how could this be? How could this happen when I went to church every day? My mom was like, you got the Gardasil shots. I was like, yeah, like five years too late, girl. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, where were we at fault, which is really important, right? I, I think that it's super easy to look at the situation as a whole. I don't know about you, but um, I've been in abusive relationships and it was so easy to feel like, well, I see very clearly what this other person did to me. And it was really hard in the beginning to see what my part was. That doesn't mean that I'm responsible for any of the abuse that happened. No. Right? It doesn't mean that I deserved any of the things that happened, but it does mean that I have a part. To say that you have no part And part of that for me um, was seeing that my part was I didn't value myself, right? My part was I was too scared to seek help. 
Yes. My, I mean, there was a million things that I could see my part. And the really cool thing for me is that I love AA because they don't pretend to be experts in places that they're not, right? Yes. The first 100 men and women were not like, please come to see us for your medical stuff and your psychiatric needs. They were like, no, like we are here to work the steps and bring you closer to God so that you can go seek appropriate treatment. And they tell us to go seek outside help if you need it. And we needed it. And for me, that included medical treatment and included psychiatric treatment. For me, um, I'm a rape survivor. And so I did many, many years of rape crisis counseling. And because of that, I became a rape crisis counselor in return and did that. And she's the person that I trust the most in the whole world when it comes to trying to decipher and untangle the mess that comes with being an assault survivor. Like I am too. And one of the things I learned from that sober in AA, because it was a guy in AA, was this part right here, which is very, very tricky to discuss. Where are we at fault? Because normally you're not supposed to say you're at fault in any way, but there was places I was at fault. I went with him because I didn't like who I was in that moment. I didn't want to be by myself. I didn't like the way I felt. I hooked up with someone I did not want to be with. And then as soon as I kept saying, no, I don't want to do this. I want to stop. That was where I was no longer at fault, but I walked into a situation knowingly with somebody that was not a good person and I, I was not making safe choices. That doesn't mean what happened to me was, was my fault in any way, but what I can tell you today is I've never had that happen again because I don't make decisions like that anymore. I don't hook up with people because I don't like how I feel. And I, I would like to say that that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen again. And I guess that's what the not at fault thing is really important yes. is because, yes. um, you know, surviving, unfortunately, we live in an unsafe world, but we can make choices that give us the chance to be safer. And I think that there's such a high rate of sexual assault among women, especially in AA is because alcohol and drugs were in the mix, right? Yeah. And it's, really, it's actually under, in the state of Ohio, in case anyone's interested, it is impossible to give consent if you are under the influence. So oh my God. Take that in. Which it's just means impossible. for anybody that has any alcohol or drugs in their body, if they end up being physical, sexual with someone, then there's no consent possible. Right. Wow. So I think that, that means that we never gave consent one time. Right. And sometimes I was the perpetrator, right? Same. Yeah. I, I totally pressured people into doing things that I'm positive that they did not want to do. Yeah. And I was, just have more drugs. We'll all be fine, right? Yes. Yes. So I, it's tricky to see where you're at fault. And here's what I'll say. If you are unable to see where you're at fault in the beginning, that is perfectly okay. And that is why it's so important to seek outside help. Everyone is at a different place in their journey of recovery from the, these things, right? Your sponsor can help you find resources. Yes. And that's their job, right? So when And they so should never tell you something that they don't know how to do. Absolutely. When they come to me, I have a list of people they can call and places they can go that can offer actual help. And it's, I mean, it saved my life. It, it truly did. And it brought me to the place where I was able to see so clearly that I did not deserve any of those things that happened. And it doesn't matter if I walked out of my car butt naked down the street. I still didn't deserve any of these, those things that happened. But that today I can control my behavior. And that's empowering, right? So the whole goal of this is not only do we not want to harm people, right? That's the first goal is that we don't want to harm anybody. And the second goal is we want to feel empowered to make good choices and, and to be good role models and to feel good about ourselves. And the only way they've ever found, everyone was like, I, I'll love you until you love yourself, which was such a beautiful sentiment. But like, what the fuck does that even mean? I, I know. have no idea. I found that the only way to get self-esteem is to take esteemable actions. Yes. So I had to do things that made me feel good in order to feel good. Right. And when I went through that really hard time, um, you know, post-divorce where I was with someone in AA who I thought was my friend and I changed the rules of how I spoke because I no longer was speaking in a very overly sexual way. Um, it, it almost went really, really bad. And I kept doing inventories and I said to you, I don't know how to shake this. It's really, really bothering me. And you said, well, you get to use this feeling and empower yourself. 
And I completely changed the way I behave, completely altered my behavior, how I dress, how I talk, how the things I share around specifically around men. Um, and I, what happened is I ended up creating a sacred intimacy with my partner and the only person I'm willing to talk about that stuff with is him or you. And that's it. That's so cool. What a difference it's made. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Um, in this way, in this way, beautiful. Okay. So we got it all down on paper. We looked at it in this way. Here's my favorite part. We tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. Okay. So we defined what sane and sound means. Sane means showing good judgment, sensible and practical. Okay. So is my idea of a relationship showing good judgment, sensible and practical? And is it sound? And sound we defined as healthy not diseased or damaged. These words could not be farther from the truth to describe what my entire history of any intimate relationship was. They would be the, if someone was like, could you find me the antonyms of all of your relationships? It would be this, these words. (laughs) I realized when I came to this part that I actually had no idea what a healthy relationship looked like. None. There were no examples in my life I look, I love my family. There are, there's still no examples in my life of what a sane and sound ideal of a relationship looks like. And, and I think that that really impacted how I went about going after what I thought I wanted. And that is also something that is a really big deal. And look, none of us are perfect in the book says it right before this, right? We're not perfect. We all have sex problems. So nobody has the perfect relationship. But I will say when you're looking for a sponsor, if their sex life is a fucking disaster, that should be a really big red sign that they, that something is missing in their step work. Yeah. That should and I not- think this is for me, the hardest for me, it's not for everyone. For me was the hardest area for me to change and it took me at four years of sobriety to change it. And then it took me again at 11 years of sobriety to change it. And then it took me again at 16 years of sobriety. So I, I imagine I'm going to keep evolving and evolving because this is an area I, you know, really, really want to work hard on. I mean, it's become something that I'm getting to do for a living now. So, and, and so will you be. So it's like we went from these people who made these horrible decisions to people today who get to be empowered by them to help guide other people to make healthy, sound decisions. Yes. So I will say, and we're going to talk about the sex ideal here in one second, but I have rewritten my sex ideal over and over and over again, because when I receive new information about who I am and what I want and what I'm growing towards, I want to include that. You know, it's just like having a relationship with God. You always say, um, say the iPhone thing that you say about Right. So the first time you get your first phone, you're like, this is the best phone on earth. And then you realize, oh my God, they have one that's color. That's so cool. And then you find out that there's a flip phone and you can open it up and put the buttons in. And I got so good at doing the buttons, I couldn't even look at them. And then people got this thing called a smartphone. And I was like, I don't want a smartphone. I love my phone. And they're like, no, you need to get a smartphone. And then when I did it, it made my life better. And that was like an iPhone 4. And now I've got an 8, right? So each time I upgraded, it was because people told me that the new version was faster, was going to have more capabilities, was going to make my life easier. And that is what I do with God is I, I, whatever I'm currently using, if it, if there's, if I realize I need something that's bigger or better or more capable, I upgrade because God's capability for me is endless. And I've only, I think I know everything when I got my 4S and then I can't even fathom what an 8S will be like. I love that. And I think about the stages of different relationships, but also my current relationship, right? The, what I needed to guide me when I was engaged and getting married and it was the most exciting, wild time of my life, <laughs> not what it looks like five years in with a baby. No. <laughs> you know, like we need, we need different guidelines. A baby, a pandemic, right? health, all of it. All stuff, right? Because we grow and change. And so I think that it's so important that our ideals and our spiritual work and our higher power grows and changes with us. And that's what I look at when I think about a sane and sound. Will you stop and tell the listener who doesn't know what a sex ideal is, what a sex ideal is? Yes. Look, 
in the book, it just says we shaped one, right? We, we shaped an ideal. So really it's just an idea. But for me, what a, an ideal is, my sane and sound future sex life ideal is who I want to become in a relationship and who I would like to be in a relationship with. So in the beginning, when my, I, my sponsor, my, one of my first sponsors had me write this out. And so when do you write this in the process? Um, I did it after we did our fifth step together. Yes. So that was, it was part of my homework for when I went home for the hour after my hour, right? It was part of my journaling exercise of like, now you get to write this. And the important part of doing that is it became a part of my ninth step amends to myself. Yes. So it's my eighth step list and I'm on it because I was a jerk to myself. Right. Sexually. Yes. yes. My amends is living my sex ideal and subjecting. It's going to tell us each relationship we subject to this ideal. Right. You're matching it up. Does this new relationship that I'm in match the ideal that I wrote when I realized how harmful I was being? Right. And it's not a checklist. It's not like has brown hair. Right. But I did that initially. My first, my first list was like this. And then the person I was working with was like, okay, take off everything that is visual or monetary and now write 10. Th- this time it was so basic. She was like, write 10 things, 10 character traits you would like your ideal person to be, which is not even what a sex ideal is. And then I looked at them and then she told me to check the ones I had within myself. And I had three, like I was mm-hmm. funny. And she was like, until you get all 10 of those within yourself, you're really never going to be able to, to attract and find that within somebody else. But really what the ideal became for me was, how do you want to behave in a relationship? How do you want your partner to behave? How do you want to be treated? How do you want to treat them? What is it going to feel and look like? And so like Sarah's going to talk about, that was very detailed, but I just want to share two things. For me, recently, like in the last six, eight years, I, I boiled it down to two things. What I boiled it down to about five or six years ago was, I don't want to harm anyone with my sex ideal. So that included myself, God, or others. So I couldn't use my sex kind of to harm anyone. And then I pulled back even, I either zoomed in or pulled back, whatever I did, it became so specialized that I would become, I'll just share with you. My sex ideal today is I will not allow anyone to touch my body unless they have touched my soul. And if I would have done that from the beginning, I would have been a virgin because I, and I love sex, but the truth is I never would allow anyone in my heart or my soul or my, my humanity because I was, I didn't like myself and I didn't want you to see the things that were in myself. And I thought you were going to reject me. And so what this forces me to do today is to realize that I need to establish a mental, emotional, spiritual relationship with someone before I even allow them to touch my body. And that's just me. I mean, I'm 21 years sober. It took me that long to get to a place of that. And in my current relationship, that's how we did it. And it's been a game changer. I love that so much. And, you know, I was thinking when I first wrote out my sex ideal, it was like, someone who isn't an active alcoholic. Like that was my sex ideal. It was like somebody who, I was also 16, so you can excuse me, but also I was like, I just, I need somebody who isn't physically harming themselves. Currently. Currently. That was like yeah. my, my bare minimum, right? Yeah. Like we're not drinking and using together. And yes. that's in my mind, I was like, wow, what a relationship that would be. <laughs> yes. Beautiful. And what I found, I love that it morphs into the real question, basic, let's say you, you're like, I can't write this out. It's too much. Are you harming anyone? Is anyone yes. being harmed? Yes. Is being with this person harmful to them? Is it harmful to you? Sometimes it gets tricky because I've found through breakups, my own and watching others, that when, you're, when people are about to be broken up with, we all know it happens, right? All the laundry list of things that you complained about, suddenly they're doing them all. And they're like, if you leave, that will be terrible for me. So then you think, oh, am I harming them by leaving them? Yes. And, and when they're hurt and they're crying, yeah. it feels like you're harming them. But why is it not harming them? Why is that not harming them? My favorite. I'll kill myself if you leave. Oh, yes. You've had what? that. Right? Yes. It's like the most intense. So it's harming them because the truth is nobody who is healthy is 
going to say something like that, right? And if you're unhealthy, being in a relationship is the last thing that you truly need. And it's harmful to be with someone that you know you're not supposed to be with, even if it hurts their feelings, because everyone, including that person, deserves to be with someone who wants to be with them. Also, just because somebody isn't able to be honest, right, for themselves, can't see the truth for themselves, if you see the truth, you're still responsible for that truth. Yes. So it's really tough. I think, so for me, what it became is I started because I started living my sex ideal, which for me in the beginning, you're right, was a bunch of characteristics. Like I want to be honest. I want to have integrity in my relationships. I want to be um, respectful with my body, right? Things that I had never conceived of before. Um, you know, I, I don't want to date multiple people at one time, right? There were <laughs> these very basic ideas that like were very foreign to me. And what ended up happening is I started dating really quality people. They weren't the, always the right people for me, but I, I was no longer dating like these terrible humans, right? Because I had the ability to go out with people who were generally good, which was great. And because I was able to do that, I got all these different experiences and I got to find out what I truly wanted and what truly worked and didn't work for me. As you remember, I dated somebody very seriously for a few years who we were different religions, right? And he was a great person and I'm a great person and we really cared about each other. But at the end of the day, we found out through a lot of work that that simply was not going to work out for us, right? Because there were some things that were just too big to get over. They were too big. And your basic, your basic outlook, belief system, way you wanted to go about the world was so different. And that, there's nothing wrong with it being different, but it was a problem for both of you. You right. both were unhappy about it. So that became part of my sex ideal, right? So right, because you learned from that, I don't want that again. And so I wrote in my sex ideal, someone who shares the same beliefs about um, spirituality and a higher power as I do. And that's not important to everyone, which is totally cool. Right. Your sex ideal is so personal to you. Let's say you're like, you know what, Sarah, this is bananas. I don't want to get married. I don't want to life partner. That's fine. Your sex ideal can be anything that works for you, what you believe and you want, as long as you truly in your heart think that that's God's will for you. And so I think, you know, mine evolved into, you know, I, th I thought about the way that I grew up and I thought, is that what I want my relationship to look like? And so part of my sex ideal was I want to be with somebody who's able to be a co-parent, right? Who's able to present a united front, which is not what happened to my family, right? We played my parents like fiddles. We were like, oh, mom said this and dad said this. And, you know, who, we probably created so many problems in their marriage. I'm sure as we all did. You know, and I don't, I don't want that. I want somebody who's able to stand up and, you know, all of these things. And I, I really, at the end of writing this all down, I remember going to therapy and saying, I feel like what I just wrote down was a unicorn. Like this person is a unicorn. <laughs> I actually think that that's a mythical creature that does not exist. I thought I, if this is too tall in order, these things that I'm asking for, which by the way, is so ridiculous because when I look at my sex and my sex ideal, I am those things today. So I was going to my therapist saying, I am all, I finally become all of these things, right? I'm trustworthy. I show up for the people I love. I do what I say I'm going to do when I say I'm going to do it. I, you know, I, when I argue with somebody, I can be respectful, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, I don't know if another human, so whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in doing so. So that means that if I did something um, terrible to someone and um, I want to get it off of my guilty conscience, but it's going to harm them, I don't get to go to them um, so that I can ease my soul sickness if it's going to harm them. In other words, we treat sex as we would do any other problem. And here's an awesome tool. It says, in meditation, we ask God, not our sponsors, not our friends, not our family. We ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. Those words are so important 
because I have to want to know um, and do God's will. If I don't want to know God's will, then I, um, I always come back to what I want versus what I need. Um, and sometimes and I don't want the answer. Like, right. I, here's what happens. If you are doing the work, you will get answers. And if I ask, sometimes I don't want to know that answer. I'm like, shh, shh, God, it's okay. I got this. Because the answer is going to be hard. But you know in your gut, right? We always know deep in our gut. And it's my willingness. Am I willing to listen to that conscience, to that God voice? Or am I going to keep powering through, taking my will back, continuing to live in misery? I always say, I always tell the people I'm working with that they have two choices. They can live with a little bit amount of misery in their current situation for indefinitely, right? You can go about your day and know that you're in a bad situation and that could go on forever. Or you could walk through a shitload of pain right now and know that there's an end date to that. And that for me is what listening to God's voice is. I will also say that um, I know it's not God's will if I cannot love as is. And that's so, uh, hard to do is to love as is and I'm sure it's really hard for our partners to love us as is as well because we're a lot but I always have a choice right I always have a choice my choice is I get to love someone as is which means I accept them and all of their wonderfulness and all of their awfulness or I say this isn't acceptable to me I'm unable to love you as is um, and I leave but I can't punish someone. I can't stay and say, do not love you as is. And I will punish you for a very long time for it. We and can't. we cannot love someone with the hopes that they're going to become something that we believe that they could become because they're not, they are who they are, right? Me and you are same inventory over and over is we are delusional because we keep expecting our partners to behave in a way that they don't. And then we get mad. Why are they behaving in a way that they don't behave? I mean, why are they not behaving the way that we want them to? Why do they keep behaving the way that they always behave? And you always ask me, well, you can stay or you can go, but you can't love them hoping they're going to become something else. And it's so crazy because it's just, it's not good or bad. It's just different, right? <laughs> it's just different from what. Yeah, it's not right or wrong. Right, right. It's just, you know, what Ro Eugene always said, she doesn't like to use the words right or wrong. She likes to use things like, this is something I like and this is something I don't <laughs> like, right? So like who I was in my first marriage that didn't work for me and my ex-husband, there was nothing wrong with the way he did things and there was nothing wrong with the way I did things. It just didn't work together. Right? right. What I wanted and what he wanted were not the same thing. So that means when I'm in a relationship today with someone, I have to be willing to see the facts and the truth and ask myself, is this what I want? And is this what I want to accept? And if it's not, and the answer is super clear, like you said before, like we always know, like if you're quiet, you always know, then you get to decide what you want to do with that. And this works for every single relationship in my life, not just the relationship with my partner, right? I, I can accept people as is, I can love them as is, or I can say this is toxic. I don't have to have a relationship with people because I'm an adult. <laughs> and he, so here's the new tool, right? In meditation, we ask God. So that's what we do. We don't ask other people. We ask God. That's so true. I used to have a sponsor who used to say, Sarah, stop fucking potential. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Because God alone can judge our sex situation. We're on the bottom of page 69. Counsel with persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. I wrote on the top of this page, AA is the worst place to get sex advice or financial advice or probably advice. Right. And next to that, I wrote, ask God. Or seek someone who's an expert, but we are not experts. Yeah, I have a degree in poetry, so. <laughs> we realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. In fact, we avoid giving advice at all. 
right? That's what the whole last page that we just read says we stay out of it. Our only job, once again, just as a reminder, is to guide people back to their higher power through the steps. The only advice I give is if someone's harming another person. Right. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal, which is what we wrote down, and stumble. Does this mean we are going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and will have learned our lesson. I underline this next part in red. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink and probably to die, right? We are not theorizing these are facts out of our experience. So this basically means if nothing changes, nothing changes. If I continue to harm people, I'm, I continue to harm people and I'm harmed. So, um, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where, which is that me and you learn the hard way that we are better off not using AA as our dating campus and that <laughs> we want to, it sounds disgusting, like it's an oxymoron and we want to make it a sacred place. So whoever's there looks at us as like a sibling or a friend and never feels manipulated or like we want something from them. Yeah, I always want this to be a safe place. And I also, you know, it's really important that it says these are facts out of our experience, right? They're, they're not just saying like, maybe this happens. I mean, people die who continue to harm other people. And we've both sat in these rooms over the years and watched it happen over and over again. If your sex life is out of whack, that is a huge red flag that something is not going right. And I'm going to assume you're not working 10, 11, and 12 on a day. I was just thinking of both of us have an example. You were engaged to someone and you said, and you cut it off um, and they were not doing well. And you said when you were talking about it before that you knew that he was not well because he never made amends. Mm -hmm. And I was in AA with somebody and he ended up dying, your, your ex-fiance. And I was in AA with someone who ended up raping me in sobriety and he never made amends and made it right. And he's never been back in the rooms. And so we do pay a spiritual price for non-spiritual, con you know, sorry, we pay a spiritual price for non-spiritual actions. It doesn't mean that we can't fall down and mess up. It means that there is a way we are supposed to go about it that is laid out in our book about what to do when we harm people. Also, I just keep coming back to the question, how free do I want to be? Mm -hmm. Because if I can't get this part of my life together. I'm not unblocked from God. And that's truly the whole point of all this, right? Is so that I have a clear channel to my higher power. And when that happens, I treat people better. Yeah. Okay, so to sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal. So if you're having a hard time coming up with one, you can just pray about it. For guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, and for the strength to do the right thing. So that's when you know in your gut what the right thing is and you're not ready to do it, you get to pray for that strength. You know what I just realized? I've never even seen it before. There's no reason that they would put the strength to do the right thing if the right thing wasn't usually really hard. So because hard. you don't have to pray for strength to like eat ice cream, right? It's just enjoyable. So to pray for the strength to do the right thing is telling me right there that the right thing is going to require strength. And I think in both of our experiences, it usually is against living your truth. Um, usually comes at the expense of other people's feelings. Approval. And approval and what they wanted for you. And so something I come back to again and again, and I don't think we've said this yet. And if I have, I apologize, but it's on repeat in my head is that there are two kinds of business in this world. There is my business and there is none of my business. And what other people say, do, think, feel is not my business. My only business is to behave. And if I'm doing this work, I get to live my truth. And that is so hard and vulnerable, but it's the only path I know to freedom. Okay, so 
Now we get some advice. If sex is very troublesome, here's what we do. We throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. That means the morning after a huge breakup, I'm still sobbing. My eye sockets are like black. I feel like my head's gonna fall off and I have you know eight women showing up to my apartment and I, I get to lead them through big book because that's what we do. That is, that is how I stay unsuffocated by myself. Yes. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for taking us through the sex ideal. Sarah is my go-to lady to take me through and show me the facts and make me uncomfortable. And that is why I love you. I love you more. No, I love you more. For any listeners who would like to get deeper insight into my story, I just released my memoir, Seconds and Inches. It was a dream of mine for decades to write my memoir And while I do not believe in mixing money in AA, I just wanted to share with the world that I did this accomplishment and it can be found wherever you normally purchase books, paperback, audio, or digital. I wish you an awesome day. Thank you.